Hi, this is Ivan Parfenoff, Community Justice Vista at the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. I want to welcome you to The Witness. podcast where we bring you first-hand stories from attorneys and advocates who are on the front lines of fighting for justice for people living in poverty. The Witness is a project of the Shriver Center's Clearinghouse community. Today's episode is the first in our new mini-series about the Shriver Center's own Racial Justice Institute. Formerly the Racial Justice Training Institute, over the past five years, the Racial Justice Institute has equipped more than 200 fellows from around the country practice community-led advocacy in pursuit of racial justice. During the first ever Racial Justice Institute national convening, we got to talk with some of the lawyers and advocates who came together from across the country. We learned about their lives, their careers, and their hopes for the future of the Racial Justice Institute. In our first episode, we are sharing the conversation between Racial Justice Network Director Kimberly Merchant and Legal Impact Network Staff Attorney Kevin Herrera as they talk about their unique RJI journeys. All right, Kim, we're here at the RJTI convening uh, 2018. It's wonderful to be here. Um, Given that we're here, I mean, the whole reason I wanted to get to sit down and chat with you about this is because I feel like we're seeing pictures of your journey from participant to coach to faculty, to head of the Racial Justice Institute at Thriver. And, I mean, it's a genuine curiosity for me. Like, what's that journey been like? And what's it feel like now to be, you know, kind of in charge of the the whole thing? Uh, It's surreal, I think. Um, And it was not an intentional journey. So it just kind of happened organically. And I think that's why when I became the director, it was such a natural fit. Mm -hmm. Leaving my organization, um, I got a lot of questions around, you know, why are you leaving? Um, Was I not happy? And it really wasn't that. I just felt like it was kismic. It was meant to be because I had been so involved. Now that this opportunity came up, I feel like I was a natural fit. I'm like, who could lead this organization better than someone who's kind of been a cohort member faculty coach, I knew this, I knew RJTI. And so it just made sense to apply um, and was very pleased to, to get the position. And so, yeah, it's been a, a journey, but it's been organic and natural. So it, I never questioned it because it, it just seemed right. right. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed any changes in your own, like in yourself, basically, going through the process? I mean, how many years has it been since you started just a year. No, no, with RJI. Oh, five. So this is, you're, you're at year five. Mm-hmm. If you were to look back and kind of reflect on the sort of transitions you've seen in yourself mm-hmm. from beginning to now, what do you think you would, you would say? I would say I was pigeonholed, um, and I didn't realize it. You know, you're working in your state, in your organization, you're doing your work, and you kind of become siloed in what you're doing, and you forget all of the fabulous work that's happening around you and in the nation. So the beauty of this job and why it's such a blessing for me is I know folks in all of these states who are doing great work 
And and I can tap into that. So I have a, a much broader picture. I think even more so than individual cohort members because I know what all the cohort members are doing. And I love when I can call your name, the state you live in, and I know what you do. Yeah. Um, and so being able to see that broad map and make those connections is just it's tremendous. So I, I, it's taken me to another level, and it's made me appreciate and see the power of the network, which is why I really do believe that this network can be impactful. Right now, I don't know that we're doing everything that we could be doing. I don't feel like we're making the impact we could be making. But I'm, I'm dedicated to figuring out how, how do you deploy these race equity warriors in a way that changes the momentum of what's happening across the nation? Because this really is the way to do it. You've got like people in all these different states and sectors. How do you deploy these folks collectively to just kind of shift Shift the narrative of what we're seeing because you know this week was really hard with the Supreme right. Court decisions right. and losing Judge Kennedy. It was almost like he died. I hate to say that, but it's like he a death. Tried. He picked it. <laughs> so one thing about it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, dude, are you, are you not watching the TV? Right. You understand how right. important, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm like, you, you can't. I know you, you 89. Keep, keep doing those push-ups, right? <laughs> right. But you don't get to hold out. <laughs> right. Give it what four more years right. or something. Just right. you have to hold out. It's almost like you want them to under. And I know he does. I'm not. You know, shortchanged. I'm sure he thought long and hard about it. Mm-hmm. But you know, you just like you gotta wait until we can we can change the face of this. Um, and I'm I really am hopeful for um, for the next election, okay. the presidential election, because I want to believe that now that people have seen what it looks like, that the majority is not pleased with what's happening, and in, in the election will show that. Okay. If that doesn't happen, then we're going to fall into a new sinkhole, and then we're going to have to dig ourselves out again. I'm going to have to rejuvenate myself. But right. You've got this you know, whole collection of warriors <laughs> to be alongside you. If that yeah, we're going to have to have a retreat. Right. <laughs> a full week on a boat. Maybe we should boat. set up a watch party or something. <laughs> Everybody, yeah. you know, vote absentee. Let's get together in November right. either to celebrate or to console each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something's going to have to happen. Right. Well, you talked about the network, and I'm not going to say favorites because this is public and I don't want to hurt any feelings, but if there were a couple of individuals or co- like teams that mm-hmm. you've watched and seen grow mm-hmm. through the RJ process, like which ones come to mind or who, would you, who, who have you enjoyed watching kind of grow? You know, it was interesting because I, I ran into Lorelai uh, Williams from LSNYC, and we just finished mm-hmm. their training, and she was like, I called my team together. Will you like they really embrace systems thinking in the iceberg model and just to see everything she's done to change what they've been doing in such a short period of time. Awesome. You're like, you could just duplicate a Lorelei, but also I think she has positional power, so she has the ability to do so. Yeah. But that's just tremendous. Um, and then you have states like Washington, Murph, Nick, the work that they're doing in Washington. Washington Columbia Legal Services. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're just so progressive and they're mm-hmm. right on the forefront of what's happening there. And not just what they're doing externally, but Murph as a leader and what she's done internally. Like she became the executive director and turned that organization upside down right. and, and weathered that storm because, honey, it was a storm for her, if you hear a story, and, and came out the other end and the better for it. And she's just so unapologetic, very explicit about what's happening and where she stands. And it's just beautiful. Um, I love connecting with Murph because... Just hearing her story is very powerful. Ohio is also very tremendous, how they come together across the state and they have these annual convenings around race equity and how they continue to bring others, the gaps in their state, into the fold and trying to 
to um, get them kind of on board with this. But I want to transition to you, Kevin, because um, oftentimes I don't know I don't know how the impact is for. And I know sometimes the jump start is slow for folks because it was slow for me when I went back to my organization, and it just looks different. So I would like to know, like, what has been your journey? Because I almost feel like you came in this already, like you were already like-minded, like you got it from day one. So I want to know whether you felt like RJI contributed anything to what you already knew, because it's almost like an expert coming into the room. Like, what do you teach someone who already gets race equity and the importance of it? Did it bring anything in addition to you? And and what and if so, what was that? I'll say a few things. One, it's, you know, nobody comes in an expert, right? This is a long journey. And, I mean, we're all coming to collective understandings of how to fight best. So that's, you know, I, I would sit year-round in the classroom if I were allowed to mm-hmm. and listen to the people that come together, both as participants and teachers. Second... I mean, you've talked a lot about like warriors and people who are in the movement together. As a younger attorney, a lot of the times I'm thinking about things from a perspective of looking up and what RJ does, or RJI now, does in a way that I think we haven't really scratched the surface of is it creates heroes for people, right? So you're talking about legal services in New York, Columbia Legal Services, Abel in Ohio and other teams from Ohio. And now I've got Murph and Nick and Michelle Majors at Columbia Legal Services who are people who are doing this work. And I'm like, I want to do that. How do I do that? And I know them because they're my peers Mm. from the network. So I can call them and say, hey, you just did something groundbreaking. Teach me. Teach me how to do that. Or at least send me a (laughs) one-pager. Send me an email. Give me 15 minutes because that 15 minutes could change everything about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Same goes for Ohio. I mean, Patty Hernandez is a person who in a lot of ways reflects a big part of my story and coming how coming to to legal services coming to want to do progressive legal work and I mean you know how it is it's very few and far between that people can resonate with your story and understand what it's like to have people you care about be subject to the problems you're trying to solve I mean the legal profession is very limiting to folks who are marginalized. Mm-hmm. And I'm incredibly privileged based on my childhood, but I'm still super connected to that marginalization. So having somebody in a network that I know personally, because I was put in a room with them and can call them and say, hey, you know, this is how I'm feeling. How are you feeling? And we connect on that level is so rare. So, you know, A, it's been a wonderful learning opportunity, but B, it's these people that I know now that I'm learning from and connecting with and hopefully, you know, the process keeps us connected because um, there are things that I've accessed through RJI and Triver that I never would have had in my old offices. So it's been really, it's been really tremendous. Yeah, I want to, I guess, take it to a more personal level because, um, you know, we've been teaching a lot around implicit bias and de-biasing. And one of the things we teach in de-bias is this, this idea of individuation where you have to um, kind of, dispel all of your stereotypes and ideas about people um, by getting to know them. Mm -hmm. And you're a great example of that as it relates to me because when I first met you, first of all, I assume you're a white man. Right. um, And didn't really think much about it one way or another, but the beauty of it is the more I get to know you, Kevin, 
and and especially when I heard your story, and thank you for sharing, it was like years ago when you shared it, but understanding kind of some of your journey and your story and getting to know you, I have learned to admire and appreciate you so much. In fact, we were talking about expanding our capacity, and I was like, Ellen, Kevin would be great. <laughs> I don't know if you want to be on our team. That's a whole other question. Yeah, I said that. <laughs> uh, but for real. And so I just want to say that, um, you know, I was guilty of maybe having perceptions or stereotypes just based on, on looking at you. But um, as I hear your story and just hear you talk about the work and even your perspective at work, like we're, we're not, we're just having a conversation because we're in the same meeting and things you say. And I've just gained a much greater appreciation, I think, and, and admiration for you and the way you think and the way you move. Um, yeah, I like it. So well, Thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. I mean, it's um, that, that sort of cultural debiasing work is, I think, a thing that's underappreciated about RGI, too, right? Like somebody might look at the training from the outside and say, oh, they teach you how to craft a good lawsuit or how to, you know, run a good policy and be a community lawyer and really take into account how race equity should be a part of everything you do. But that's not all, right? Like, we talk about culture. We talk about bias. We talk about how we move individually in the world. So if I'm looking at you and you are my peer, I better learn who you are before I start acting a certain kind of way. And if I've already gotten myself into the groove of it, I better stop, step back, and consider those things, which is, they don't teach you that in law school. No. And they don't teach you that in your, you know, boot camps for whatever legal services you're in. And they certainly probably wouldn't teach you it in a law firm. So, you know, a re-education as an adult is a very rare thing. Um, And that's what we're getting. That's really cool. Um, I'm really having to work on my white man, honestly, because... My, I don't know why, but I'm sure it's based on my background, but my encounters with white men often start with, with that stereotype and, and a bit of defensiveness on my part, I think, as a black woman initially. But I've met so many fabulous ones. It just, every time I meet, honestly, a white man who's in this work, who complete, it's just like a complete surprise for me every time. And I have to continue to check myself because I'm like, you don't expect that of white men, but there are lots of men... I know you're not white, Kevin, but there are lots of men, white men out there, (laughs) you know what I'm saying, that do this work, that get it, that speak this language, and they get it. But it's for me, it's hard for me to identify until they open their mouth. And, like, it's, um, we haven't (laughs) talked about this much in the the training, but there's there's an obligation that comes with that privilege, right? Like, I understand that everyone will assume that. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I mean, certain places. But I, I see you. I see it in you now. <laughs> but, but it's it not obvious when we were we talking the first instance, and that's that's completely fine. And though, so what do I owe the community based on the fact that you might see me in this negative light, but I walk into a room full of other white men, and they're like, "Oh, let's go play golf," right? Like that's and that's a space I get to move in, and it comes with responsibilities. But what is that experience for you like? when people make those assumptions and then at some point maybe something is said or you do something and there's this realization that, oh, okay, he may not, he's not, he may not be a white man. What, how, how does that feel and how do you navigate that? I mean, I, I play secret agent all the time and it's just how much can I keep my mouth shut and because everybody's comfortable saying everything they want to about me. If I haven't said much in a room, I get to hear the most offensive thing in that person's brain because yeah. I'm assumed to be on the team right um and it is 
it's not easy and it's pretty awful, <laughs> but it's, you know, you learn things. I mean, and the other thing is you go through this your whole life and you develop really thick skin by the time you've heard, oh, you're not Mexican. When you tell people, <laughs> like, yeah, no, it's, I grew up in a brown household. My mom's Mexican. You just learn to expect either complete incredulousness or the one that always kills me is that last one I just mentioned, which is people denying who you are who to you. Are. you. Wow. Um, and so that experience has been rough. And I mean, a lot of, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say like a lot of the work for me is um, an opportunity to sort of fulfill what I believe my identity is. I can sort of recharge my own batteries by saying, no, you wouldn't do this if it didn't connect to you personally. And it's selfish, but it's, I feel like I'm at least helping people. And if I go home at night thinking, all right, like I have reaffirmed who I am, then it's a great opportunity. So that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of how, I mean, this look <laughs> uh, and this background kind of blend into to what I do. It's got to be exhausting, though. Do you find, um, like, when do you decide to pick and choose your battles? Like, you're in that setting. Someone says something incredibly offensive, not even realizing or understanding what your cultural background is, even saying something about Hispanics. Right. I mean, when do you decide when to step up and say something or just to be like, you know what, I, I'm not going to do it today? I, I, I mean, I need some professional development on that point, right? <laughs> if you want to design an RJI session on picking your battles, I, I take on too many of them. I mean, I've, um, I'm sure I have lost opportunities um, because I'm a relatively emotional person. And oh. so it makes it really difficult for me to sort of suppress and maintain a sense of professionalism or, you know, whatever, like... If I hear things that I find objectionable, I usually say something about it right there. And sometimes you, you know, there's a there's a, a good amount of strategy that has that has to take place when you're engaging in these conversations. And I'll just walk right into the bear trap. Like I don't I don't, I don't chart my way around it or hop it. over it. No. Um, so that's that's the danger, right? Is I I, I don't know how to pick and choose. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I am too tired, but. Most of those times, instead of me saying something, what you'll see is just, like, I'll slouch on my chair, I'll look sideways, and everybody knows that, like, oh, he's sulking. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not a great way of going about the world, but that's the honest answer. Yeah. What about you? When do you, when do you pick how, how have you learned to pick your own battles? You know, and it's difficult, when, especially now, when people ask, what do you do? Yeah. Uh, and, um, and there are times where I hesitate, or, or I, I will whitewash it. I'm like I train attorneys. Really? Mm -hmm. Just because I do not want to engage. Yeah. Or either I don't want to be judged. I don't want people like, what does that mean? Or, you know, so, and sometimes it depends on who's asking, if they're white or black. Right. Um, if they're black, then I just don't feel like explaining what it means to do, you know, with the race equity lens, what exactly that means, what does race equity and race justice mean. Yeah. If they're white, I just not prepare for maybe the looks or, or my stereotype threat, the threat of them possibly like, like she does what? Or looking at me differently because, and so here are the times I'm like, I train attorneys across the nation. I really do. I will whitewash it quick because 
I get tired of fighting about something. You want to take that hat off from time to time and yeah. just live and not have to do that. So I'll admit that there are times where I, just, I don't even engage. Yeah. I don't go there at all, depending on how I feel. Has it, has it been, I mean, being the face of a racial justice institute, yeah. I mean, has it been sort of a burden a little bit? No, in, it's not a burden at all. Okay. But where I live, folks don't get it. Mississippi. You know, I'm, in, I'm right there in Greenville. And right. um, so they have no idea the reach or, or of, the, of RJI mm-hmm. and just how powerful it is. For me, it is. If they knew, like they know I travel a lot, but they, they don't, they have no idea. No. Absolutely none. And so I know do I have the time to explain or, or in, in, in part that for me. You're not going to do a full implicit bias 30 minutes. <laughs> Five years. This is what we built. But yeah. Here's, right. a, here's an implicit association test. Come back right. to me in a little bit. No, that yeah, makes no. Sense. So, so. I, I definitely pick and choose my battles all the time. Just yeah. for peace of mind. You for know, sure. we deserve a break. Yeah. People of color deserve a break. Um, <laughs> Jesse, our producer is over here nodding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, to sort of wrap up, you've got, you've had this amazing journey from, transformational sort of participation to watching other people grow to being the person that's going to steer the ship. Mm. If you're thinking five years from now, um, not necessarily about yourself, but about the ship that you've kind of become the captain of, like, where would you want to see this? And like, let's, let's take the political, you know, doomsday aside. <laughs> so, supposing everything turns out great on that end, like, what do you think RJI will be doing in five years? I would love to have a presence in every state, and I would love for each state to find some way of adopting their own kind of context around race equity, actually working me out of a job. And and I could just simply be there as ongoing support and helping them strengthen the work that they're already doing, not trying to tap into new areas. If you look at the map, we still have a lot of gaps. Mm -hmm. Um, So in 10 years, I'm hoping we've covered that map, that we're good, and some, and, and and then we can work on triage. Like, which one of these states need more support? Where where do we need to tap into? We can be more strategic. But right now, because there's still quite a few gaps, we we're just trying to fill gaps. And so, in ten years, I'm hoping we fill those gaps, and it's more like I said, a triage. And and we have built. I really mean that enough race equity advocates across the nation, where we are tipping, kind of tipping the point. Um, we get to a tipping point where um, we are the majority and we have more control and strength. And we're challenging every step. We will not tolerate this. In the moment something like this happens, we are on, like, what is our next step? What, what do we do to challenge this? I don't know what you do when the Supreme Court come out with something. <laughs> right. But then we have to start talking about what's plan B then? Okay, somebody said on the, um, the gallery walk today, we cannot depend on the courts to protect us. Right. We have got to do the on the ground in the community work. And so what does that look like? Because especially as legal advocates, oftentimes our greatest weapon is that lawsuit. And it's interesting to see kind of the change in the atmosphere. We have to start thinking about, you know what, litigation may not be the key because we're not winning these battles in the right. court. And it's looking less likely because even if Trump doesn't win in the next election, you have to keep in mind that he he's going to put the system in place so that even if he is not there, that Supreme Court is not going to change for a long time. If he puts the right people in place before he leaves, we still have to contend with that even after he's gone. And it's going to be a minute before whoever comes after him, if that's someone who's more progressive, has an opportunity to start changing it. So that Supreme Court stuff, that's going to be a long-term strategy because right now it's almost like it's it's not an area that we can depend on.
That was great talking to you. Thanks yes, Kevin, this. thank you. And it's more I get to know you, the more I love you. So I appreciate you oh. choosing me. Yeah. All right. Coming up next on The Witness. Are there any questions that you want asked? Or... Um, let's see. I, I'm very... I think it's interesting to hear who's the most important person in your legal career. I think that I I gravitated toward that one. I also like um, what worries me because I'm a worry wart mm. about the future. Um. Thank you for listening to this mini series on the Racial Justice Institute. Once again, this has been Ivan Parfenoff from the Sergeant Shriver's National Center on Poverty Law. This episode was recorded and produced by Jesse Dixon, the Training and Engagement Vista at the Shriver Center. We'd like to extend a special thanks to the RJI cohort members for sharing their stories and allowing us to record at the convening. We hope you'll continue joining us for The Witness. We would also like to invite you to join us for the Advocacy Exchange, our monthly conversations with advocates advancing change. Those are hosted live through YouTube each month. You can find both the Advocacy Exchange and The Witness on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. You can also learn more about the podcast and the Clearinghouse community by going to povertylaw.org forward slash clearinghouse. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.